Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the restaurant of life, we're putting freedom back on the menu. It's the Missouri Liberty Report with John Williams, working with grassroots organizations and legislatures to make Missouri the freest state in the nation. Let freedom ring. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Missouri Liberty Report. And uh, again, I'm happy to be joined by Ethan Thampy tonight. Uh, Before I get to Ethan, before we bring him up, um, just to let you all know, I had a discussion with the, I believe it's Ellisville Police Chief uh, last week, Sunday, right? Just this past Sunday, anyway. And, um, so probably sometime, <clears throat> excuse me, next week, um, maybe like a Wednesday or a Thursday, I'm going to bring him on for about a half an hour because he's got an interesting topic uh, that I want to discuss with him about uh, the juvenile uh, crime and um, how the juvenile centers are dealing with it and basically... Um, the the issue is is that they have people that are you know they got juveniles who are stealing cars or property damage or whatever violent crime and you know they they call juvenile deten- juvenile centers or whatever and they say you know we we've got such and such here and they're like take them back home to his parents and it's it's becoming an issue now he said they are working on it and trying to find some, you know, ways to remedy the situation, but it is apparently a big deal in St. Louis County. So I'm going to have him on, and um, we're going to talk about that. But I'm going to, I'm just going to do it in the middle of a week, 20, 30 minute interview, and it'll. I, I'm not going to make a podcast out of it, but it will be live streamed on YouTube. Our conversation. So, um, anyway, with that, Epen. How are you this evening? Um, I'm fantastic, man. I'm out here in Kansas City. You know, had a had a long day, but a productive one. So, well, Epen, let's get right into it. Uh, let everybody know what bills that you've been working on. Uh, because last session, I know a big part a big part of your uh, duties were. Uh, Ron Hicks's bill on recreational marijuana legalization, which was a fantastic bill that when we all know the story, I don't want to, I don't want to rub salt into wounds here. Um, but what are some of the things that you're working on this session to make Missouri a better place to live? Well, uh, you know, uh, if you remember Paul Curtin, uh, who 
passed our agricultural hemp bill in 2018. You know, I now represent most of Missouri's hemp companies. Um, so we were looking at ways to uh, grow that industry and, uh, you know, kind of uh, remove barriers to further infrastructure and processing development. I'm very excited about agricultural hemp as a industrial commodity because uh, it, it can replace so many products that are currently used for industrial purposes or like textiles or there's just so many applications. I'm very excited about that. Um, then um, I've got a bill with uh, Phil Cristofanelli that would uh, protect uh, Bitcoin miners and uh, offer some like uh, legal and regulatory clarity for uh, startups in the cryptocurrency industry. Um, and then uh, with uh, Tony Lovasco, and uh, uh, we've got a uh, bill to allow psilocybin access. And, uh, you know, the FDA is in process of, well, actually, there's a stage three clinical trial underway uh, for psilocybin for depression. And once that's concluded, we expect the FDA to reschedule psilocybin so it's available by prescription uh, probably next year. Um but when that happens, you know, uh, you know, it's, this is a, a therapy that has a lot of, a lot of utility. Um, but we don't want to necessarily see the only options available or like a synthetic or a pharmaceutical, you know, product. Um, when we have, you know, psilocybin mushrooms that can grow naturally. So, uh, Lovasco's bill kind of, uh, creates uh, more legal protections for patients and providers and, uh, creates uh, allows for botanical psilocybin uh, products on the market. Yeah, this is interesting. <clears throat> now I know you've been keeping up uh, with the the research that's been going on. Can you can you kind of go into <clears throat> what they're seeing as far as depression and some other things? I is it actually a what I thought I heard? Maybe I I, I misheard or I uh, misunderstood, but I could have swore I heard someone say that it's actually showing that it can actually heal the brain some. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So, uh, psilocybin and other classical psychedelics seem to spark uh, neurogenesis in the brain. So the brain like literally grows new neurons and those neurons make new connections and also, uh, creates uh, conditions of neuroplasticity. So, uh, the brain can like literally rewire itself, which is very valuable in cases where there's something abnormal or some trauma has adversely affected the brain. Um, it also seems to have a significant effect uh, on uh, as an anti-inflammatory. So you think about you know autoimmune diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, where there's a lot of infl- inflammatory activity in the brain uh, that causes various uh, negative effects. And so we're seeing very promising research data come out um, on all of those fronts. Yeah, that that's fantastic. Um, now, I, I I believe there was a, a documentary here several years ago. I watched it was like the Great White Hope or something. They were talking about um, basically these corporate jails and marijuana. But then it, towards one part of the documentary, they were covering the psilocybin. And it was either in Oregon or Washington that they were doing trials. And the people that were there um, taking this microdose, uh, some of them were saying that like their anxiety or whatever 
uh, mental ailment they had was really, really getting relief from this yeah, mic- I mean, microdosing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so a microdose is a subthreshold dose. So, so the idea of a microdose is um, that you don't feel anything, you know, you don't experience the psychedelic experience that is typical when you eat a lot, lot like a larger dose of mushrooms. So, uh, the great thing about microdosing is that people can consume sub-threshold doses on a daily or weekly protocol. And uh, um, it seems to have, over time, uh, has a lot of benefit, yeah. Um, and, you, you know, you're right. You know, there's, uh, you know, like I said, the stage three clinical trial for psilocybin and depression is undergoing. Um, and kind of along with that, there's, uh, you know, very significant evidence showing, showing that, uh, you know, it helps with anxiety, you know, like, you know, we're seeing very high rates of, uh, efficacy, you know, some, I guess, depending on the study, we're seeing like, you know, 60 to 80% or higher rates of, you know, people, you know, having less anxiety or hopelessness or depression, um, once they, once they, uh, start these therapies. Yeah, and, you know, I have to agree with what you said a minute ago is I would also like it to stay as natural as possible because I think when you do that, you get the most benefit and then instead of them trying to synthesize something that's similar, um, I would rather just, you know, if people want to use the natural um, the natural way, then they have that ability without worrying about well, just like marijuana for a long time, worrying about being arrested or whatever for being in possession of this. But, um, yeah, I mentioned it's funny when you talk about that, too, because I'm, I've mentioned this to a couple of people and they're like, oh, well, I don't want to trip. I'm like, no, 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 no. Microdosing. I'm not saying go out there, trip your behind off and then be like, oh, I don't feel so depressed. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about small doses. Um, so is isn't there. Is there a university here in, in in Missouri that's researching this? Is it SLU or somebody that's researching this? I believe there are two clinical trials ongoing at Washington University. Washington, okay. And then in Overland Park, there's a second uh, set of clinical trials on psilocybin and actually also DMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is like the active ingredient in uh, like ayahuasca, if you ever hear of ayahuasca. I, I've the only I've heard of like uh, Joe Rogan and stuff talking about DMT. Now is that the same thing you would you would do a uh, a microdose of that? And so of course you could. You, yeah, you could. Now, like DMT by itself is, I think, uh, usually vaporized and inhaled. Uh, in clinical use, you usually see like an intramuscular injection. Um, but in uh, ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic tea that has a lot of high levels of DMT, uh, you know, that's consumed uh, as a tea. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, I know that they're going to want people, they, they want to heal people without, again, without the, now some people might want that, but most are not going to want the hallucinations. They're going to want the healing effects of the properties of the psilocybin or the DMT. And that's why I was curious if they were going to, you know, if they were doing very small doses of that as well. Um, you know, you know, you can do the microdosing protocols. Those are useful and over time they're valuable. Um, and, you know, I understand, you know, some people don't 
have have maybe a, a, an, a, an idea or a, uh, you know or, you know might make them a little uh, you know wary of having a full psychedelic experience, but you know. I'll be honest, you know, especially if you're really suffering you know, from PTSD or depression or something, you know, that, that full psychedelic experience has a lot of benefits. And I'll be honest, it may not be a pleasant experience, but it is a healing one. Okay. See, I, I didn't know that. Um, you know, I, I, that's the thing when I, um, in conversations with people about like medical marijuana, a lot of people, you know, there's people out there, they want, the benefits of pain relief, you know, chronic pain or whatever, but they don't want to be high. They just, they want relief from pain. And, you know, I've heard people talk about when they go to a lot of dispensaries, the stuff is really potent in THC. And so them trying to maneuver to figure out the dosage that's right for them. So they're not baked because they don't want to be baked, but they want the, the pain relief. And I know that's been a struggle for some people, but I mean, um, have you heard anything like that? Cause I, like I said, every, everything that I've heard about, uh, the, the stuff you get at dispensaries, is this really potent stuff for the most part? Yeah. You know, and over time, I think as the market evolves, you'll see, uh, some different directions on that. You know, we're com- emerging from a black market, you know, it's illegal, you know, we were under prohibition, you know, for, for decades. And so, you know, the easy metric for, for consumers to judge quality when they don't have a lot of information is, is sure, is, you know, is the THC level. And uh, what you observe in markets, some of these uh, markets, as they get legal and people get are able to get more information, you know, have lab-tested products, be able to experiment with, uh, you know, marijuana that has different, you know, uh, levels of THC and, you know, other other uh molecules like terpenes and flavonoids is people, you know, once people like figure out, Oh, you know, well, you know, you know, it's not just the THC in this plant that's valuable or even, you know, gets you high or, um, you know, I think, you know, you'll see uh, kind of a, uh, a market develop more options for people. Um, you know, THC by itself can, I think cause like, you know, in certain, people cause like, you know, you get too high, get kind of wig out, you know, (laughs) Um, but when you have, but when you have a more balanced, you know, entourage of uh, things that the plant can produce, um, you know, the explosives, the experience can be a lot more pleasant. Yeah. I mean, I know that uh, the last time that I tried anything, somebody had a, a vape pen and apparently it was uh, sativa and not indica because I wanted the nice, you know, lay down, take a nice long nap. And instead I got the, the rapid heart rate and stuff. And I'm like, yep, don't like that. And so it wasn't, it was a, a sativa strain and not an indica strain. And I'm like, I got to do indica. Sativa is not, I don't have a pleasant experience, but everybody's different in that. Now, speaking of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, and the the horror that is Amendment Three is any are are there any bills or anything that's being done to try to curtail something that you know was amended to our Constitution? Unfortunately, there is a lot of interest. Um, there is a lot of interest, um, but you know I'm going to take a kind of like measured and judicious approach to, to this because. 
Like, quite frankly, like, you know, we went up against the $8 million campaign of the, you know, monopoly operators that want to control the market, you know, and we had practically no money, right? So there is interest, but I'm not going to, and I, and I just spent 14 years of my life working on this, right? So I kind of got beat up a little bit, and that's okay. Um, but what really needs to happen is that, you know, there needs to be some group or some, you know, movement on this where, you know, you really do have the funding to be able to move the dial uh, and, and maybe give, you know, you know, have Missouri, let Missouri have the discussion of should we revisit this and, you know, what's the, what are our options here? Um, and I think that there will be a basis to do so uh, sometime in the near future, maybe, uh, because uh, the federal government is in process of reviewing the scheduling of marijuana. So the federal government might actually come back and say to us, we're going to move marijuana to schedule three or four or five or even take it off schedule entirely. And any any change to, as long as the you know, federal government moves it from schedule one, you know, there was going to be a basis for Missouri to come back and say maybe we should look at how our state laws uh, work here and, uh, um, you know, what would be best for Missouri. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but, you know, kind of at the same time, I want to, you know, we, I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time. Yeah, it is, unfortunately. Um, and again, I, I've said this many times, if our legislature had moved a little quickly and a lot of people were impatient and they thought, well, here's our chance to get recreational marijuana, not knowing what you know other hells were laced in that 39-page bill. Um, and that's unfortunate. I mean, we did our best to educate people, but the impatience, and I, I, I understand people getting impatient and wanting recreational marijuana because they're seeing the other states pass it. And they're like, why can't we do the same thing? Um, it's just, it's just, it's kind of sad that people didn't, don't really know what they got themselves into on, on, well, you know, three. the one thing, the one thing that we did find out is that the more people knew about what was going on, the less they liked it, you know, and that was particularly true of like the pro legalization majority, um, you know, with less than a hundred thousand dollars, uh, we brought that campaign down from about 70% approval to, to the final vote was a little bit over 50%, right? So, you know, if, you know, if we had another $100,000 if we'd been able to run radio ads, we probably would have, uh, uh, you know, not, uh, avoided the Amendment 3 deal and, um, you know, had, had, a, had something better uh, get passed uh, potentially this year. Yeah, and, you know, with Ron Calzone, he had a map and showing, you know, how many counties actually passed it to how many counties didn't. And, you know, that, that brings up uh, IP reform. Uh, there, You know, there's a lot of people, including myself, that says it's too easy to change the Constitution, so we need some, you know, IP reform in the state. And, you know, then we have several bills introduced to do that. Some of them I don't like, um, and some of them, you know, H was it HGR 30 was the best one. HGR 43 has been making it through, um, and it could be amended to be as good as 30. But I, I would, you know, I don't want the signature threshold going up. I want the vote threshold going up because, you know, uh, and I can't remember which one it was last year. We had one um, they tried to shove down through at the end of session. And it died in the Senate, but 
they wanted to raise the signature threshold way up because they said, oh, all the, you know, we're trying to keep the big money out of our state and amending our constitution. And we were all like, well, if you do it that way, the only people who are going to get enough signatures are those entities that can afford to pay all the gatherers, all these people holding the petitions and going out and getting the signatures. They're the only ones that will be able to amend the constitution because they have the money to do it. Yeah. You know, um, I like the idea that Ron Calzone has put out there, which is a concurrent majority so that's a uh, majority of the population and a majority of uh, state house districts have to approve a constitutional change. And that protects, I think, us from like St. Louis and Kansas City and maybe a couple other counties um, being the, you know, I mean, if you win the, the vote in eight counties, you can carry any statewide issue. Right. So we have one hundred and, you know, 14 counties. Um, I don't necessarily think it's like the best idea to you know, what St. Louis, Columbia and Springfield and Kansas City, um, you know, you know, decide something that affects every every part of the state. Right. Well, let's get into this, because, listen, I I, I'm not uh, crypto uh, savvy here, so you may have to really lay this out for me. I know a lot of my audience members have a better understanding of crypto than I do. So let's talk about this uh, this. Bitcoin like mining bill that you brought up at the beginning of the show. What is what is this all about? So Bitcoin is a digital currency, um, you know, invented up 14 years ago. And the idea was um, to um, create a currency that did not exist under a mechanism of centralized control. Um, and it can get a little technical to describe it, but like just on a basic level, you know, Bitcoin is a digital currency that exists through a, uh, a, uh, a computer network and anyone can create a, a part of that network if they have a phone or a computer. Um, so, you know, you know, when we say Bitcoin, you know, we're not just maybe talking just about the actual currency, but also about the network that, uh, creates and, um, you know, makes the, the, the currency possible. Um, and, you know, the, the basic idea here is like, um, everybody knows what a ledger is, right? You know, a book of accounts and, you know, cash goes in, ca- you know, cash goes out uh, and so forth. Well, um, you know, and in a sense, you can think of money as that ledger, right? Um so like with Bitcoin and you have this whole network of people running the Bitcoin program on their computers, right? Everyone, the Bitcoin network is a ledger that's on everyone's computer, right? And it, it's updated every 10 minutes. And the whole idea is, you know, every, you know, there's a, it, it's, it's protected, you know, all the, all the entries and all the uh, communications and all the, uh, transactions are secured by cryptography. And when a transaction happens, it goes, it, it, the, the entire distributed ledger network is updated. So, um, you know, and the activity of the computers that are running all these nodes to protect the network and to, um, you know, the way that, you know, the way Bitcoin was created, there's only 21 million Bitcoin 
And to access that Bitcoin, you know, all these computers are trying to solve a cryptographic uh, puzzle, which is, which is an activity that we call mining. Um, so this mining activity is like kind of the activity that creates Bitcoin, creates the network, secures the transactions. Um, now, in some some uh, Western states and some Eastern states uh, that are Democratic states, uh, you know, you have Democrats coming out and saying, oh, well, you're using energy, right? And you're burning, uh, you know, you're, wherever that energy comes from, you're creating carbon emissions um, or, you know, making making other similar objections. So uh, a lot of uh, municipalities and, and, and certain states have been very averse to this idea. Plus, you know, once you, once you have a, a currency that is not under centralized control, you know, Bitcoin is permissionless and it's trustless. So that means that I don't need your permission or a government's permission to engage in a transaction. You know, it, it can, it, I can send someone $10 million worth of Bitcoin without, you know, across the world without having to deal with any other intermediary, right? There's no, it's a peer-to-peer system. So, um, you know, it's permissionless and, and because the network is cryptographically secure, um, it is trustless. I don't need to know you. I don't need to trust you to, for, for us to both be both, uh, ha, you know, have a, have security and, and our ability to transact and do business or, you know, whatever we want that involves a transaction. Um, so it's kind of like if you're a Ron Paul guy who bought into the end of the federal audit, the fed, you know, message and, you know, you're, you're discouraged by the, Federal Reserve's continued debasement of her currency by just printing more money whenever the government needs it. You know, a, a hard currency that can't be debased is is the solution. You know, which is why you see some people advocating to a return to the gold or silver standards, which is not necessarily you know it's a, it's, a, it's not a bad idea. Um, but in the modern age, with the system, the network that. It's created for this digital currency we call Bitcoin. You know, it's a solution. It's a free market solution. And again, it doesn't depend on any government or any centralized authority to exist. So, you know, some people some people get it. Some people sure are still skeptical. But, you know, it's an innovation that has a lot of potential to, you know, allow for a little bit more liberty and a, you know, a little less centralized control. And, and that's what I appreciate about it, that it's decentralized and, you know, that the feds don't necessarily have control of it. And that's what I enjoy about it. I guess I'm old school. And, you know, if you gave me a choice between Bitcoin and gold and silver, I'd take gold and silver because it's something I can hold in my hand. And I think that's I think that's a big deal for several people is just like, oh, if I can literally hold it in my hand and put it in safe in my house and I know it's secure and it's mine and I don't worry about, you know, the feds coming in and just screwing up the system and suddenly, and and then I'm sure the FTX scandal didn't help anything, even though that has nothing really to do with Bitcoin or its decentralization. That was an idiot who got greedy, but. Yeah, that was a scam. I mean, just like any other scam in history. Right. right. So that's going to, I, but there's a guy at work. He's always talking to me about crypto. And, and, you know, he said that uh, Bitcoin has taken a big jump in the last few days. I, I think he said it went up three or $4,000 the other day. And I was like, good Lord. And when Bitcoin takes a jump, it's not like a couple cents here or there. Bitcoin takes a jump. And 
Well, you know, you know, the, the lay view of this is like you think of the exchange dollar of U.S. dollars with Bitcoin. The true Bitcoiner doesn't think about that because the true Bitcoiner like looks at, you know, because Bitcoin is a monetary system that can't be inflated or debased, right? One Bitcoin today is going to be one Bitcoin 100 years from now. That's how we look at it. You know, now sure, if there's an exchange value with a, a governmental fiat currency, you know that's that's nice, right? And you know, as you know, people you know move from move their savings or holdings from one asset class to another, you know, you know, Bitcoin is increasingly being seen historically as a as a safe asset to hold. So you know, that's kind of why there's fluctuations in the you know fiat exchange rate versus bitcoin but with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No you know, there's, you know, I see this as a currency that's never going to be able to be debased. Right. Yeah. That's so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is nice that, again, there's no central planners. They're not going to say, oh, there's, you know, like you said, there's 21 million Bitcoins. Oh, now we're going to up it to 42 million, you know, or whatever. They're not going to do that uh, because they have a market cap of 21 million and that's all there's going to be. Um, I will say this, even though, again, I'm untrusting of something I can't hold in my hand. I love the technology, but I remember Bitcoin in its inception. And I remember that I and I still I'm not going to lie. I'm a little irritated because at the time when I was looking at it, I could have got a Bitcoin for about nine or ten dollars a coin. Now, I could have put forty, fifty dollars and bought five Bitcoins and just wrote it out. And when it hit, what, sixty something thousand dollars? I mean, good Lord. But um, so, yeah, I'm kicking myself in the hind end for not getting in on Bitcoin in its inception, because when I first heard about it, I didn't really look into it. But I'm like it. um uh, I can't remember the name of the show. There was a show on my friend Sam's network and they were really talking about it a lot. And I just never took the time to try to understand it. These guys were talking it up and the whole time they're talking it up. It's just slowly going up. Now, did I envision it hitting $60,000? No, I thought, Oh, this is some fad. It'll lose its luster. And it didn't. <laughs> did I was yeah, you know, I was dead I would just wrong. Say, you know, we still you know, you know, true Bitcoiners. You know, we think that we're so early. Like, even if Bitcoin were sixty thousand dollars today, I'd still be buying it. 
right? Because like I, I believe, and a lot of other people agree with me, you know, Bitcoin is going to continuously over time increase in its exchange value. You know, we expect you know Bitcoin to be worth a million dollars here in the next you know few years. You know, um, you know, and that's that's going to happen with more adoption, and you know, people are going to see. Bitcoin as an asset class that they can hold, that's not going to lose its value. And you think about, you know, the sum total of all the real estate in the world, which is like some crazy amount, like $500 trillion, right? You know, and as you successively see more adoption and you see more assets denominated in Bitcoin, you know, that exchange value is going to continue increasing, we believe. Yeah. And I, you know, again, it's helped that uh, some, a lot of businesses, started saying yeah we'll accept your bitcoin for a transaction and that that really helps things because you know people are like well i can get this but what if i actually want to use it because i know it's been several years ago this uh younger guy had bought bitcoin at an early stage and i don't remember how many he had but he decided i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna buy a lamborghini now it took him a bit but he finally found a bank that would take the Bitcoin, turn it into cash, and then literally went and paid cash for a Lamborghini. And I'm like, well, that's got to be an awesome feeling to sit there and get in on the early stages. And he still had Bitcoin left over. You know, he didn't spend it all. But he had such a chunk that he's like, yeah, I'm buying a new Lambo. Like, <laughs> and, and I just, I would sat there like, I, w- I was looking at Bitcoin at $10. $10. Oh, I remember. <laughs> Oh, it's like, oh, what a kick in the nards. But, hey, you live and learn, right? Um, oh, yeah. So what else have you been working on lately? Even any anything else? I mean, we've mentioned these two bills, but you're always working on something. Surely there's something else you've got in the works here. Oh, yeah, you know. Um, well, you know, I'm you know, kind of like dabble in that, a little bit in everything, you know. I'm uh, – <laughs> Talking to a lot of uh, candidates right now that are going to run for office in 2024 or thinking of it, you know, I'm always interested in hearing who's like the freedom oriented guys. Um, you know, um, you know, our new state treasurer, Governor Parson appointed an Indian American. That's Indian, a uh, dot Indian, not feather. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, immigrant Indians and, you know, first or second generation Indian Americans are getting very excited about Missouri because, you know, if you're an immigrant Indian like my dad, you know, um, they've been here for 30, 40 years. You've probably made some good money. You know, most Indians who emigrate are very good at business or they're doctors or engineers or something, you know, very highly educated. Um, and so they're now looking at, uh, Missouri as a place where that's welcoming to them, where they can do business, um, you know, and uh, so, you know, I'm talking to a lot of those folks because, you know, there's also a geopolitical issue here, right? Because we might be at war in China, you know, in, in three years, right? I mean, if we were at war in China, um, we have some real problems if we're so dependent on them for pharmaceuticals or electronics or semiconductors or textiles, Right. Not to uh, not to, uh, you, you know, and not only that, you know, the more we trade with them, the more we help fund a government that's likely that's taking an increasingly aggressive posture to, you know, the United States and our allies and uh, 
um, and is spreading, you know, a, 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 a evil message, a truly evil demonic message of socialism, you know, and, and totalitarian control. Um, so, you know, India, on the other hand, you know, we have a lot, a lot of common, a lot in common with the United States and, and also Israel, I would say, and not just in terms of our history. I mean, we're all former British colonies at some level. Um, you know, all English-speaking majority countries, uh, but also in terms of values, you know. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm excited, you know, to, to, to see that, you know, you know, immigrant Indians and their, you know, families and their children becoming more politically active. I think that's a really strong positive for the United States. Yeah, um, you know, it... <sighs> Again, I, I, I keep mentioning this, but it's true. Um, COVID was a disaster, um, but it was also silver lining. It got a whole heck of a lot of people who finally figured out the government intrudes where it doesn't belong constantly. And COVID was the last straw, especially if they were a business owner or something to that effect. And that brought a lot of them out of the woodwork to run for, you know, whether it's a uh, city alderman or a county position or state rep or senator. And I hope that that momentum keeps building that more of those folks run uh, because they, you know, a, a lot of them, uh, of course, were affected by lockdowns, shutdowns, whatever. And they decided no more. And I just hope that that sticks with people and they don't forget about it in five to 10 years and go, eh, well, that was, Five, ten years ago, everything seems to be settled down now and we can go back to our normally, you know, or our regularly scheduled program. It's like, mm, this is government. And if you if you fall asleep at the wheel, they're going to take over. Um, so, you know, and that's the thing. I know that immigrants, a lot of immigrants come over here because they understand what America is supposed to be. And I think some of them um get over here and then they go, whoa, whoa. Like my wife, she works for the state. A couple of years ago, a gentleman who was originally from Russia uh, was living here and he had an issue and she was helping him sort it out. And he goes, you know what? He goes, this country's getting just about as socialist as Russia is. And she's like, although I agreed with him, I couldn't, you know, I, I didn't want to say anything. But yeah, there are people who escaped it they come here and see what governments are doing in states and just federally and going, what do you, you, you know, we, we ran away from this and you guys are running towards it. What is the problem here? So I don't know. I mean, you know, as far as it, cause I don't know any really Indian immigrants, even do they, they, they seem to probably treasure freedom quite, uh, I mean, probably treasure it quite well. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah. You know, if you are Indian and you immigrated in the eighties or nineties, that meant that you grew up under the shadow of the Soviet Union and communist China. Right. So that's something that memory is still fresh in your minds. Whereas in the United States, once, uh, you know, Reagan left office and we won the cold war and, uh, the Berlin wall fell, you know, I feel that we kind of forgot, you know, the, the issues and the danger and the existential, you know, nightmare of, 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 you know, being in that, that era, you know? So, um, you know, and then I think, 
you know, I think a lot of Americans, you know, I mean, respectfully, almost all Americans, like prosperity has made us complacent, mm. you know, and, and, you, you know, we've seen like some of the decadence of popular culture, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think something, thing, some of the things I see and I, uh, you know, in, you know, immigrants who came to this country for the, you know, hope and promise of the American dream is, you know, they're helping us remember those, that, 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 that those ideas, you know, this country is supposed to be, you know, the, you know, candle in the wind, you know, you know, the city on the hill. Right. And we are the beacon of liberty to a, uh, a world that is, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of places where, you know, someone like me or someone like you, who's a free thinker, who believes in liberty, like, man, I, if I was born in China, <laughs> I probably would not be alive right now. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, no, you're right. And, and, you know, the thing is, too, is that um, I know that there are certain cultures of, of people that family. Now, I'm not saying that every family in America doesn't, you know, like really are not family oriented. But I know that like a lot of Hispanic cultures and other cultures, family is huge to them. So if they come here, they're going to want the family, um, the natural family order to stay alive. They don't want to see it crumble. Like some folks apparently would love to just tear down, you know, the, a natural family type of thing and have state be mommy and daddy. That is the oh, nice thing about on all my, my entire life. Yeah. So, you know, I, I see that other cultures, yes, can help us realize that, hey, you know, don't dump on your family and go worship government. You know, you're, you have to take care of your own and you have to keep them safe and not uh, depend on government schools to educate your kids on everything and then hope they don't turn out like a dumpster fire when they get out into the real world because they, they don't really know what's going on and their education is lacking. Um, so, yeah, I don't, you know, again, people who immigrate here and become citizens, I don't have a problem with that. I don't, I don't like the government doles money out to people who don't want to come here legally and drive, right, right, right. driver's license. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, my parents, my parents did it the right way. You know, they, they got the visa, they got the, went through the process, you know, and, and then I do agree, you know, like we, we can't have, you know, you know, I mean, we can't, you know, as a, as a, I mean, a nation that does not have a secure border is not a nation. Yeah. Well, and let me ask you this, because I hear different time frames. How long did your parents have to wait between visa and actually becoming naturalized citizens? How many years did they have to go through all the processes to, to actually become naturalized? I think my dad got here in 74 or something. I think he got his citizenship in, oh, maybe sometime in the early 80s. Uh, and then my mom came here with him in, I want to say, 83. She was a citizen by 89. So it took a while. Um, but, yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, I, mean, I remember I was like six or seven years old, and we went to the... Um, courthouse in South Bend, Indiana, and she got her citizenship. You know, that, was a, that, was, that was a memorable thing I still remember to this day. 
Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, Ethan, because I haven't been through it and your parents have, but I understand that there needs to be a vetting process. And I understand that, you know, they, they, we need to, we need to make sure that people who are coming to this country don't have nefarious, you know, ideas. But I, I'm hearing like I have two women that I work with. One of them was nine years and one of them were 10 years. And these are not slackers. They're like, oh, I'll just put that up. No, they're, they're hardworking people. And I'm thinking, I appreciate the fact that you did it the right way. But nine or 10 years seems excessive to me. And I now this is my personal opinion. I'm no expert, but I feel if you're if you're if people are, it's taken people nine or 10 years to become naturalized. I can see why some people are like, I ain't going through all that business. Nine, 10 years. Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, am I is there something I'm not seeing here or what? Because I just feel like that's too long for people who want to you do know, it the right way. I kind of see it both ways. I don't know what the right thing to do here is. You know, we should be encouraging people, you know, you know, from every part of the earth. I mean, the immigrant culture and diversity of Americas is one of her greatest strengths, you know. Um, at the same time, you know, it's, you know, as long as there's a clear path, you know, at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing for it to take, you know, better part of a decade. But, you know, I mean, it, it you know, you know, I, I I don't know what I think about this question. You know, I, I see virtue in both ways. Um, you know, I uh, you know most countries in the world right now in the in developed society are uh, facing uh, significant population challenges. Like, um, you know, we're not repopulating ourselves. You know, the birth rate in many Western co- countries is below the rate of replacement. Um, and so that poses a lot of challenges, right? So, I mean, where are we going to get the workers to, you know, keep this country running in, in 10 years? Well, they're, you know, I mean, we're, we're in a doctor shortage where we, you know, we, we either got to, even if we deregulated a lot of the stuff that, uh, keeps, uh, people from going through medical school, you know, I think we probably still have a doctor shortage, you know? You know, we're, how are we going to take care of all those uh, elderly people? And you know, in, in ten years, we don't have the physicians or nurses for for it. You know, so you know, I, I think there's virtue in you know telling people that you know, if you have a skill set, if you're a mathematician or an engineer or a physicist, or you know, you've you know, you're in med school, you know, there should be maybe an expedited process for that i i think that's a smart idea you know that and that's a way for us to attract the best of the rest of the world yeah you know man i don't even i get pretty irritated talking about the the whole doctor thing because um you know like my my wife has had appointments with a couple of different specialists and it was like uh, one was a dietitian four months of waiting four months to see a dietitian and now, I do know that because of strategies and things put in place during COVID that wrecked healthcare big time in this country. And, I, I, and it's not just this country. In a lot of countries, the healthcare system got just absolutely blindsided and wrecked. And now anybody out here with uh, maybe a debilitating illness or what have you are finding it much harder to get into a doctor in a timely manner. 
And I just hope that people, um, you know, remember this in case they ever try it again. But again, we've got someone like, you know, Representative Seitz um, has a bill to get rid of the certificate of need in the state. So, that, you know, that's there's these little subtle things that pe- that we have in the state, you know, certificate of need being one of them that if, if somebody wants to go to a hospital or to a doctor or whatever, certificate of need has shrunk the amount of beds down and MRI machines and CT scanners and all this stuff. We don't have the numbers we could have because they want you to go. Yeah, we definitely need to, you know, we need to increase competition and deregulate a lot of uh, what the healthcare business is now, you know. You know, I remember when my dad was going through med school and then through residency, and every year there's more rules and regulations and more time spent filling out paperwork and, you know, not seeing patients or not having, you know, doing productive things that that end up in you know, serving patients, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a giant mess. <laughs> you know, I remember Gary Johnson was running for president. He's like, you know, it should be, you know, you know getting a, your kidney or gallbladder removed should be as simple as going to a bike shop, <laughs> which, you know, I think that's maybe a, uh, a little, uh, exaggeration, but, you know, on the other hand, like, you know, you know, thanks to capitalism, we have very efficient service provisions in, in, in most deregulated efficient industries, you know, and I don't see why we can't replicate that, that competitive, you know, model in, in healthcare. Yeah, um, I mean, you've got the hospital in Oklahoma City that they don't take insurance at all, and the the cost is much lower, and it's much more efficient because there's no middleman in there that they have to negotiate with. So you, if you need a procedure done or whatever, it's a lot cheaper and gets done way quicker. And you know, I think it's like, why are we, you know, why aren't more states looking at that model? And to deregulate enough to say, yeah, if you want to bring in a hospital like that that doesn't take insurance, let's do it. You know, if we're again, if if, you know, if we want a truly free market, those are the things we got to look at. I mean, healthcare is a big industry in this country and um, we've got to do something better because the damage that's been done over the last few years. And then you're now you're seeing you know, people don't want to become doctors. My son was thinking about going in to school for a respiratory therapist. His teacher started breaking down to him just regulations that were coming up on top of everything else. And he's like, nope, I'm out. I'm not doing it. And I was like, really? He goes, Dad, you have no clue, which I didn't. I mean, I knew it's heavily regulated to where it just creates a financial burden for those who need it. But he's like, no, teacher laid it out for me. He's like, I do not want to be a part of that. And I was like, that's fine. Do, do whatever you need to do. Um, but yeah, just, and it was, you know, like a five, 10 minute talk. And he, he, his interest was gone. He didn't want no part of it anymore. So that's uh, quite frightening. Well, anything else that uh, you want to go over here, uh, Epen? Anything else you want to discuss? You know, I probably, uh, you know, if I probably started on any other topics, it'd probably be another, you know, 45 minutes. So, you know, maybe we should wrap it up. And, you know, I always enjoy being on your show. Uh, you know, let's try to maybe, uh, uh, connect again in a month or two as, uh, our legislative session, um, you know, kind of gets closer to its end. And, 
you know, we can talk maybe about some of the political dynamics in our House and Senate, and we'll probably have a clear idea of what might pass and what might not, and, um, you know. Okay, um, that, yeah. Um, let me, uh, I will uh, be in contact with you shortly. I am booked out till the middle of April, so maybe right at the end of April might be a good time to have you on, and because um, we're getting, you know, closer to the end, and we can kind of discuss uh, what's going on in the in the House and Senate. Absolutely. Well, Ethan, uh, again, always appreciate your knowledge on subjects and bills here in the state of Missouri, and keep up the great work, man. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. All right. Take care, Ethan. Take care. All right, folks. That was Ethan Thampy. And um, yeah, so Ethan's got his pulse, as well as, you know, like groups like the Missouri Freedom Initiative do. On the legislature here in Missouri, and Epen says he's there. I think what he tell me today, he's there four days a week. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate Epen, and uh, you know, I got the pleasure of speaking with him face to face and interviewing him. And I do know that he desires Missouri to be free, and I've heard him speak on that several times. And I don't, you know, I don't think he's some weirdo who's trying to pull my leg he i Epen is all about it so um anyway folks i got about four and a half minutes to kill here before we end the show um uh so let me let me open up i i just this is just a heads up guys for those of you especially that live closer or might be interested in so if i don't whack my microphone around like some kind of stooge so I'm like April the 15th or April the 22nd, which I got to look and kind of think about this. Um, but I'm thinking trying to have uh, Michelle Latham here in Owensville, either the 15th or the 22nd of April, which would be a Saturday, to have her talk about the WEF here in Missouri, the what are they, the Global Shapers group that's down in Cape Girardeau. Um, and I, you know, I was telling her probably April having her up here and that's the date that I am looking at, um, doing. So one of those two Saturdays, um, we want to have Michelle up and, um, have a conversation. Now, last time we used the bank, uh, basement, this time we might use a different venue. I've got to see how many people it holds. I think it should hold a decent-sized group. I'm going to verify that with that uh, restaurant here in town that has a kind of a banquet room. And um, so I'm going to talk to them, see how many people it holds, so I know kind of how many invites to send out. I don't want I don't want people showing up and they can't fit in there. You know, I don't want to make people mad. I want I want to fill the room, but I don't want to chalk it full. And I also don't want to get the restaurant in trouble for. You know, being over the uh, allowed amount due to fire code or whatever. So that's something I'm looking at. Um, and no, my hadn't thought about having her join everyone at t- at the prepared homestead meeting in Roby. That's something maybe I should bring up to her too. But I know they'd love to hear from her. Um, but that's something that I'm looking at, folks. Um, April 15th or April 22nd, having Michelle up here. And uh, to discuss with our local residents or anybody who wants to make the drive, 
to have a conversation about this whole thing. Um, also would like to get Patrick back up here and Tom Martz back up here at the same time um, to discuss, you know, Tom can discuss more on the Missouri Constitution. Patrick can kind of give everybody a legislative review and uh, have another good meeting like we had back in, what was that, uh, December, November, December? I can't remember which month it was, but I think it was November. Heck, I don't remember. Old man brain, people. I got old man brain. So anyway, folks, um, next week, be sure to be here for uh, Bill Senator Eigel's L.A. Sherry. I believe you pronounce her last name Kootenkuller or Kootenkuller, something like that, Kootenkuller. Um, she's going to be joining me next week, and I have to send her, I have to call her and verify to make sure she's still going to be on. And then again in March, got a full full calendar all the way to the middle of April. I do, <coughs> I do believe I'm going to try to have Roger Jackson on, um, and he's from Franklin County uh, Republican organization, but Roger's good people too. Uh, so I'm going to try to have Roger on um, next, well, in April as well. Um, so kind of looking at things, trying to get some new guests. And if I have to, I will do some midweek live streams, just if there's topics I need to cover or do some short interviews with legislators, things of that nature. I can always do kind of a midweek, um, little live stream too, to, to, to talk, uh, certain topics. So I don't try to stick just to Fridays, but, um, it, you know, it is easier for me, but if I need to do one in the middle of the week as we get closer to the end of the legislative session, I have no problem with that either. I can do that as well. I may not be an hour because I won't record it and put it out for podcast. It will be strictly live stream. So anyway, with that, thanks everybody for joining me for another edition of the Missouri Liberty Report. Remember, next week, Sherry, Senator Eigel's L.A. will be here to talk about her job.